I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and Happy New Year. Today I'm discussing the first half of January's book Pedro Paramo by Joan Rofo, published in 1955. So each month I take a book, I split it in two and discuss it on the second and last Fridays. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel. Be aware there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas of future episodes, so please leave a comment or start a conversation below. Or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So, I've read up to page 71 where it begins The Weather Must Be Changing Up There of Pedro Paramo. Just a quick recap of what's happened so far in the book. I'm going to read that first paragraph because it's such an interesting one. I came to Comala because I had been told that my father, a man named Pedro Paramo, lived there. It was my mother who told me and I had promised her that after she died I would go see him. I squeezed her hands as a sign I would do it. She was near death and I would have promised her anything. Don't fail to go see him, she had insisted. Some call him one thing, some another. I'm sure he will want to know you. At the time, all I could do was tell her I would do what she asked. And from promising so often, I kept repeating the promise, even after I had pulled my hands free of her death grip. Still earlier, she had told me, don't ask him for anything, just what's ours, what he should have given me but never did. Make him pay, son, for all those years he put us out of his mind. I will, mother. I'm never meant to keep my promise, but before I knew it, my head began to swim with dreams and my imagination took flight. Little by little, I began to build a world around a hope centred on the man called Pedro Paramo, the man who had been my mother's husband. That was why I had come to Comala. Wow, I mean, that is one of the very best paragraphs in literature I've read for a number of years. So many questions in just 224 words. I mean, gee, talk about parental pressure. This poor guy, if she's dead and he fails to make Paramo pay, he can't call her up and say, yeah, about that father business. It didn't quite work out. I can't find him anywhere. If he makes a promise to her, he's basically committed for life. Although I do get the idea that this narrator is maybe only keeping the promise for selfish reasons. Quote, I never meant to keep my promise, but before I knew it, my head began to swim with dreams and my imagination took flight. Little by little, I began to build a world around a hope centered on the man called Pedro Paramo. Now on reflection, I think my initial thought that he's keeping them promised because he loves her and feels a duty to her is wrong. It's clearly with the introduction of this final paragraph for selfish reasons. Perhaps this man has little morals? We'll see. His thoughts of, quote, building a world around hope makes me think he lacks hope or perhaps is a very poor person. So only in one paragraph, and we have these major questions. Will he find him, Pedro Paramo? He's called by different names, which implies it might not be a question of knocking on his front door. And what does Paramo need to pay for? And will the narrator successfully make him pay? Now he gets to Comala on a descending road, as if to an underworld. His mother always wanted to return, and now he thinks, quote, I was seeing things through my mother's eyes. He meets another man called Abundio, whom he walks down to Comala with. He also says that Pedro Parama is his father. So this Pedro Paramo must be quite a rogue. 
Now, Abundio says that Paramo is dead and that he can seek out shelter in the town with a woman called Donna Eduvige, Lady Eduvige. This Abundio fellow isn't very keen on Paramo and says that he is living bile. Comala appears to be a kind of like a ghost town. He even thinks he sees a ghost and has to confirm her human features to convince himself, eyes, teeth and tongue. All the houses are abandoned and he recalls his mother's words, quote, you will hear me better there in Comala. I will be closer to you. You will hear the voice of my memories stronger than the voice of my death. That is, if death ever had a voice. You've got me, Rolfo. I am spooked. Now, Abundio says to look for a house of a lady called Eduvige Dayada, as I mentioned. He finds her house and she lets him in. She says that she was his mother's friend and that she was expecting him to arrive today because his mother told her. Even though she's dead, this is really spooky. Quote, her voice sounded so weak, like it had to travel a long distance to get here. She says that she used to say to herself, Dolores boy should have been my son and that she will tell him why sometime. So we've got a key question there. Why did Edovige think the narrator should have been her son? Now we move to Pedro Paramo's point of view. This is back in the past. He's helping his grandmother shell corn and grind chocolate. And he's also thinking of a girl called Susanna who he has lost and of his recently deceased grandfather. His mother is understandably upset. He seems to be living in poverty and there are constant mentions of how money is short. And then we go back to the present in Comala with the narrator. When the narrator says that Abundia told him to call on this lady Adavish, she explains how he actually is dead and that when he was alive, he was deaf. This is literally a ghost town. And then Adavish is described as a ghost. So maybe she is a ghost too. Quote, her face was transparent as if the blood had drained from it and her hands were all shriveled, nothing but wrinkled claws. Her eyes were sunk and out of sight. She is certainly a ghost. Now this lady Edovige tells how just before her wedding night, she swapped with Dolores because Dolores was worried that a local fortune teller had told her not to sleep with Pedro Paramo during a full moon. Edovige says she didn't sleep with Paramo on the wedding night, but do we trust her? And the very next year, the narrator was born. Edovige says that his mother, Dolores, always hated living with Pedro Paramo and that she went to live with her sister, who she still misses. So Dolores and the narrator move to a place called Colima to live with his aunt Gertrudis. So it appears here she is just up to the left with her son to live with her sister. Then we go back to Pedro Paramo. He's thinking of Rosanna again and his love for her and that she will never come back. Then we skip forward to the present again. Eduvige hears Miguel Paramo's horse in the street. Now this is Pedro's son, but we only learn this four pages later when Pedro Paramo is at Miguel's funeral and says, quote, my son. Piecing together all these fragments is like trying to see the liminal outline of a ghost. More on that later and more on these fragments later. Eduvige recounts how Miguel had a sweetheart in Contla and one day he tried to visit, but there was just mist or smoke. So Edovige says that he must be dead. Now, if Edovige can see ghosts, perhaps the narrator is dead and is merely a ghost as well. Perhaps. Now we go back to the past. We have a scene where Pedro Paramo learns from his mother that his father is dead. Quote, 
they've killed your father. And we've got a real question here. Who killed Pedro Paramo's father and why? Now, at the funeral of Miguel Paramo, that's Pedro Paramo's son, Pedro Paramo says to the priest, quote, I know you hated him, father, and with reason. Rumour has it that your brother was murdered by my son, and you believe that your niece Anna was raped by him. Then there were his insults and his lack of respect. Those are all reasons anyone could understand. But forget all that now, father. Weigh him and forgive him, as perhaps God has forgiven him. And then we have a scene between the priest and Anna. She never saw his face, so she doesn't know for certain that it was Miguel who attacked her. She only knows the man said, quote, it is Miguel Paramo, don't be afraid, and that he killed her father. Father Renterio feels extreme guilt for having pardoned Miguel, although he says nothing to Anna. On the very next page, he thinks, quote, it's all my fault, he told himself, everything that's happening because I'm afraid to offend the people who provide for me. So people give him money to save other souls, as did Pedro Paramo for his son. But he reflects that when Eduvija's sister committed suicide, he has not paid money to provide a proper pardon for her, involving lots of priests, even though she was saintly when she was alive. And that creates a lot of guilt in him. Father Renterio thinks of Eduvija, who the narrator is currently with. Quote, Everyone took advantage of her hospitality and her good nature. She never wanted to offend or set anyone against her but she took her own life. She acted against the will of God. He goes on to say, she died of her sorrows. Now, Miguel has been seen roaming the land as a ghost. Quote, they're saying that his spirit is wandering over in Contla. They've seen it rapping at the window of a lady friend. So, Edovige is really a pair to Miguel. Both are damned and fainted to haunt the land of the living, but for very different reasons. Miguel, because of a life of evil, and Edovige, a life of goodness, but at the very last moment, a suicidal act that has caused her damnation. It would appear that although Father Renteria is racked with guilt over not providing adequate pardons or pardoning when it shouldn't have happened, he really has had no impact on the souls of Miguel or Edovige. We shall see for certain in the ensuing pages, I'm sure. Now, continuing on, we go back to the present with the narrator Pedro Paramo's son with Edovige. He's sleeping in a room in her house and he hears a ghostly cry. A lady called Damiano, who nursed him as a baby, rescues him. Quote, come and sleep at my house. She says how the scream is probably the ghost of a Toribio character, hanged in the same room that he was staying in. When he says that Edovige let him stay, Damiano says, quote, poor Edovige, still wandering like a lost soul. Now, Damiana was one of the women who lived at Media Luna. Then we go into a section with Don Fulgar, an administrator for Pedro Paramo. He accuses Toribio Aldrete of, quote, falsifying boundaries. Basically, Pedro Paramo is trying to increase his land at his Media Luna estate. And we know what happened to poor Toribio. He got killed. Don Fulgar visits Pedro Paramo to say that he owes money. He needs to pay back the Preciado women, in particular Dolores or Lola, who is the narrator's mother. Now, their initial meeting between Fulga and Pedro has a wonderful power dynamic where they each try to gain the upper hand with Pedro ultimately winning out over the older man. There'll be more on that later. Pedro Paramo's father 
Lucas has just died. He really wants to stamp his authority, you can tell. Now, Pedro Paramo tells Don Fulgor to relay a message to Donna Dolores that he will marry her. Now, Dolores is easily duped by Fulgor. He says to her, quote, Don Lucas Paramo, may he rest in peace. That's Pedro Paramo's recently killed father. Remember one of those questions, how did he die? Don Lucas Paramo, may he rest in peace, actually told him you weren't good enough for him. So out of obedience, he kept his silence. But now his father's gone. There's nothing to stand in the way. And she's duped by it. She agrees to marry him. Don Fulgar ensures Dolores' property is put in joint names with Pedro Paramo in order to secure his fortune. Now, it appears that Father Renterio is corrupt because he wants money to marry them for his, quote, dining table. And when Pedro Paramo asks why he didn't ask Dolores for an advance, is Don Fulgar. Don Fulgar says that he didn't want to dim her enthusiasm. And Pedro Paramo thinks, quote, in spite of everything, you're still a kid. And Fulgar thinks, quote, a baby, he says, me with all my 55 years. Look at him just beginning to live and me only a few steps from the grave. I love Don Fulgar's interior monologues all the way through this first half. He tries to battle with the fact that he is older than Pedro Paramo, yet has no power over him. And he's now completely subservient to Pedro and calls him Don Pedro and Patron. Pedro Paramo asks Don Fulgar to rip up Toribio's fences. And when Fulgar inquires about the law, Paramo says, quote, we are the law. Then we go back to the present. Damiana, remember, has rescued the narrator and she says how she sees ghosts in the town and that she has seen her sister, Sixtina, who died when she was 12. She refers to him as Juan Preciado and this is the first time the narrator is named, so I'll refer to him as Juan from now on. Now, Damiana disappears like a ghost and Juan is left on his own. He sees two women recognise a character in the street called Filoteo Arashiga who procures women for Pedro Paramo and the two women feel relieved that they weren't spotted. Juan hears voices of characters, lovers in this ghost town and he stumbles into the house of a brother and sister who are clearly ghosts. They have possibly been damned due to an incestuous relationship between themselves. The sister tried to get the priest to save the souls but he refused. Quote, and this is the sister speaking, the priest rode off on his mule, his face hard, without looking back, as if he was leaving an image of damnation behind him. He's never come back, and that's why this place is swarming with spirits, hordes of restless souls who died without forgiveness, and people who would have never won forgiveness in any case. Juan communicates with the brother and sister, and they tell him it is dark and he should leave in the morning. During the night, he dreams fitfully and sees the sister's sister getting sheets from a drawer who we later find out has been traded to give him some food. Juan then imagines time turning backwards. From this point as if Juan is dying. On the next page a woman called Dorotea says quote are you trying to make me believe you drowned Juan Preciado? I found you in the town plaza far from Donis's house. Now Donis is the brother sister incestuous relationship. And he was there too, telling me you were playing dead. Between us, we dragged you into the shadow of the arches, already stiff as a board and all drawn up like a person who died of fright. So now Juan is officially dead. We're kind of halfway through the novel. He started off alive. He has ended up dead. 
he's lying next to her in a grave and she tells him how she wanted a son but wasn't able to have one. And then we go back into the past. Don Fulgar is organising cattle. Miguel Paramo returns and there is a spat between them. Fulgar calls Miguel a baby. And Miguel asks one of the women at the Medior Luna Ranch, Damiana, about Dorotea, who we have just witnessed buried with Juan. He makes a plan involving Dorotea. We don't really know what it is yet, but it can't be a good one. Now, this Miguel, he's only 16 years old, and Fulgar tells Pedro that a woman turned up yesterday saying Miguel had killed her husband. Pedro Parama brushes it off, but Fulgar says that even though he offered her grain, quote, she still wasn't satisfied. Quite right, I'm thinking she still wasn't satisfied. I wonder if that is Father Renteria's brother, or maybe it's just a different character that Miguel has now killed. Fulgar also worries about the dwindling stocks of grain, and then the half of the book comes to a close. So initial thoughts on finishing this half. I can't believe how bad Miguel is and he is only 16. Pedro is obviously not a very good father. And I'm really glad that Miguel isn't having the influence on Juan, that his mother decides to up and leave because Juan seems quite a nice person really on the whole. Now we've got some questions. His dying mother said to him, Juan that is, quote, make him pay son for all those years he put us out of his mind. So only one paragraph in and we've got that first major question. Will the narrator successfully make him pay? Well, the narrator is now a ghost, so I don't know how that's going to happen. I really hope he does. And I really hope that Miguel pays for something. And why did Edovige think the narrator should have been her son? Interesting question. And who killed Pedro Parama's father, Lucas? And how exactly did Juan die? Will we ever know? Was he just killed by the oppressive spookiness of Kamala? The weight of history in this town just pressing down on him and killing him. So there's some really very interesting ideas in that first half. We've got that idea of heat. The heat is so oppressive. From the very first, we've got the narrator descending into Kamala, a bit like descending into the pit of hell. And then he ends up in a grave. Listen to this, quote, up and downhill we went, but always descending. We had left the hot wind behind and were sinking into pure airless heat. The stillness seemed to be waiting for something. And the narrator's companion, Abundio, says, quote, That town sits on the coals of the earth, at the very mouth of hell. They say that when people from there die and go to hell, they come back for a blanket. I was lucky enough to visit Mexico and I can just feel that heat now many years ago. But yeah, I, I feel that heat, that the, the light, the blazing light and the heat. It is really like Juan has descended into his grave and now he's underground. He's gone down into this deep, dark, cavernous, hellish place. So ghosts, obviously, we've got many, many ghosts in this story. Quote, as I passed a street corner, I saw a woman wrapped in her rebozo. Sorry if I have not pronounced that correctly. She disappeared as if she had never existed. I started forward again, peering into the doorless houses. Again, the woman in the rebozo, that's a shawl, crossed in front of me. Evening, she said. I looked after her. I shouted, where will I find Donna Edovige? She pointed, there, the house beside the bridge. I took note that her voice had human overtones, that her mouth was filled with teeth and the tongue that worked as she spoke, and that her eyes were the eyes of people who inhabit the earth. 
already he's primed to see a supernatural creature and has to convince himself he hasn't seen a ghost by reaffirming her human characteristics, teeth, tongue, eyes. Is that the only real human he sees in the town? Most of the characters seem to be ghosts in this commoner place. Talking of ghosts, we've really got a very fragmentary narrative. Form really follows content in this book. We've got all these fragmentary stories and we're introduced to the narrator in fragments. And then we have Pedro Paramo's fragmented history dispersed within this narration. We don't even know the narrator's first name until almost halfway through. This fragmentation and intertwining of the story reminds me of the fragments of a ghost, willowy, dismembered, just like a vision of a spectral and disembodied person. What do you think? And as previously mentioned, we've got to piece together that information. It's not revealed that Miguel is Pedro's son until four or five pages later. There's all these little bits of clue and ravel, raveling the material together in order to create some semblance of a whole, very ghost-like in its construction. The assertion of power is a very interesting idea. Now, I mentioned that when Don Fulgar meets Pedro Paramo for the very first time after his father's died and now Pedro Paramo is the boss character, Fulgar really wants to assert his authority and it just doesn't work out. Pedro, remember, is much younger than Don Fulgar. Remember, he's in his 50s. He famously says, I am 54 or whatever. He seems quite self-important. Look how Pedro Paramo gains power over him. Quote, Pedro Paramo finally appeared. So first of all, we've got finally. So he's been keeping him waiting, trying to assert power in that way. Come in, my friend, says Pedro Paramo. Again, he has the power. Come in. He's asking him to come into his space. Continuing on. It was the second time they had met. The first time only he had been aware of the meeting because it was right after little Pedro was born. This is Don Fulgar thinking of little Pedro. And this time, you might almost say it was the first time. And here he was being treated like an equal. How about that? He's lying to himself. He's not being treated by an equal at all. We've got this brilliant free and direct discourse. Don Fulgar is lying to himself, as I say, continuing the narrative, quote, Fulgar followed with long strides, slapping his whip against his leg. He'll soon learn that I'm the man who knows what's what. He'll learn and know why I've come. And Pedro says, sit down, Fulgar. We can speak at our ease here. Again, Pedro is offering the commands over Don Fulgar and telling him how to sit. And he's telling him where to sit. He's really asserting where he needs to physically be located. Quote, they were in the horse coral. Pedro Paramo made himself comfortable on a feed trough and waited. Now Pedro is standing, keeping the authority, raising himself above Don Fulgar. Pedro Paramo says, don't you want to sit down? Again, he wants him to be in a lower place. And Fulgar fights back. I prefer to stand sensing this strategy and he elects to stand too. At least they'll be physically on the same level, if not in terms of rank. 
And Pedro says, quote, as you like, but don't forget the Don. So Pedro, noticing the move to stay on his lever, tells him to remember to address him with respect. He is gaining the upper hand. And then we have the internal thoughts of Don Forgar. Quote, who did the boy think he was to speak to him like that? Not even his father, Don Lucas Paramo, had dared do that. So the very first thing this kid, who had never stepped foot on the media lunar or done a lick of work, was talking to him as if he were a hired hand. How about that? All Don Fulgar can do is simmer in fury at the fact that he's been bested by Pedro, half his age probably. Now we've got some beautiful ghostly writing. Listen to this, quote, I watched the carts creaking by, the slowly moving oxen, the crunching of stones beneath the wheels, the men seeming to doze. Every morning early the town trembles from the passing carts. They come from everywhere, loaded with nitre, ears of corn and fodder. The wheels creak and groan until the windows rattle and wake the people inside. That's also the hour when the ovens are opened and you can smell the new baked bread. Suddenly it will thunder and rain, maybe spring's on its way. You'll get used to the suddenlies. There, my son. Empty carts churning the silence of the streets, fading into the dark road of night and shadows, the echo of shadows. I thought of leaving. Up the hill I could sense the track I had followed when I came, like an open wound through the blackness of the mountains. Then someone touched my shoulder. What are you doing here? I came to look for... I was going to say the name, but it stopped. I came to look for my father. Why don't you come in? I went in. Half the roof had fallen in on the house. The tiles lay on the ground, the roof on the ground, and in the other half were a man and a woman. Are you dead? I asked them. The woman smiled. The man's gaze was serious. He's drunk, the man said. He's just scared, said the woman. There was an oil stove, a bamboo cot, and a crude chair where the woman's clothes were laid, because she was naked, just as God had sent her into the world, and the man too. We heard someone moaning and butting his head against our door. There you were. What happened to you? Oh, so many things have happened that all I want to do is sleep. That's what we were doing. Let's all sleep then. My memories began to fade with the light of the dawn. It reminds me a little bit, this book, of A Christmas Carol. Scrooge going around and seeing all these different apparitions. There's also beautiful descriptions of Comilla. Here is the mother describing its hustle and bustle in the past quote there you'll find the place i love most in the world the place where i grew thin from dreaming my village rising from the plain shaded with trees and leaves like a piggy bank filled with memories you'll see why a person would want to live there forever dawn morning midday night always the same except for the changes in the air the air changes the color of things there and life whirs by as quiet as a murmur the pure murmuring of life what a contrast the lonely desolate visions of Kamala that pervade the novel. Now we also have a very interesting idea of a religion all the way through and the idea of damnation. Father Renteria is very concerned over the pardoning of souls, where he should have pardoned souls and whether he shouldn't have pardoned souls. The implied author obviously has this fear of the afterlife as well. That scene between Juan and Dorotea is so haunting. Quote, Dorotea says, they buried me in the grave with you and I fit right in the hollow of your arms, here in this little space where I am now. The only thing is that probably I should have my arms around you. You hear? It's raining up there. Don't you hear the drumming of the rain? And Juan says, I hear something like someone walking above us. Dorotea says, 
You don't have to be afraid. No one can scare you now. Try to think nice thoughts because we're going to be a long time here in the ground. This idea of ghosts in the ground seems so haunting. It reminds me of Frida's comments to Kay in the castle. Do you remember when she says, quote, I know of no greater bliss for myself than to be with you forever without interruption, without end. When I dream, I really do that there's no quiet place here on earth for our love, not in the village and not anywhere else. So I picture a grave, deep and narrow, in which we embrace as if clamped together. I bury my face against you, you yours against me, and no one will ever see us again. That's from The Castle by Franz Kafka, November's bookshop book. There's a real resonance there, I think. Is it a Catholic fear, this being conscious and buried alive? And the talk of the oppressive heat weighing down Juan is reflected in this vision of the earth weighing him down under the grave. Did you get that feeling? I'd be interested in knowing if there's any kind of Freudian connection with a fear of being buried alive. Is it related to a fear of familial responsibility or perhaps the weight of the past weighing us down or life and everything with it smothering us and not allowing a life to be free and take its own free course. We've got that description of that descent into Kamala, as I said, it's so prescient as if he's descending into the grave. Some really wonderful ideas from, from that first half, I think. I would love to know what you thought was interesting. Please let me know your comments and thoughts write them below or send me an email. Now, I'd like to share some thoughts on last month's book, Vagabonds by Hao Yingfang. There were some really lovely comments on the web and on Goodreads. Tammy said, quote, this will not be a book for everyone, but I love this book so much. Not quite a full five stars though, because there was just no reason for this book to be 600 pages. It's hard for me to review this book properly because in all honesty, there's very little plot. It's mostly a 600 page exploration of human identity, society, and what it means to be someone who exists in between worlds. The book definitely goes off on philosophical tangents at times. And while I personally enjoy that kind of thing, I can definitely see a lot of people hating it. Ultimately though, the experiences of our main group of characters, especially Luyang, resonated with me so deeply. And despite its flaws, this book just felt so deeply personal to me. I'd recommend this book more so to fans of literary fiction with a heavy emphasis on philosophical discussions on society and humanity rather than hard sci-fi fans. I do agree with her comments on it being more to do with philosophy of society. Although there was actually one very interesting point that I was reflecting on just a few days ago that I didn't mention in the previous podcast, which is that idea of a mind that can be encapsulated and put onto a disc. I think that's a very interesting idea. I don't know how new it is, but I think the idea of being able to capture someone's brain and then put it on a, a zip drive is incredible. And I was actually listening to a radio program this morning about how in the University of Toronto, they're actually developing a system where you can then interface with that brain and ask questions of it. So I think that could happen. I think you'd probably need quite a few teraflops of data to do it though. Now Dawn on Goodreads said she didn't quite manage to finish it and she had some interesting points about why it didn't work for her, the book. 
Quote, this writing style was just not for me. Way too much tell instead of show. It was full of paragraphs like, when she was a little girl, she had witnessed this and this and therefore she felt this way today. Mm. Okay, that leaves me with absolutely no way to experience things with the characters as they happen, which is how you make readers or viewers connect with characters. I understand you sometimes have to drop info here and there, but this was how everything I knew about the characters was told. There were exactly two moments when something happened to a character in real time and which got me intrigued, but then it reverted back to a lot of info dumping about past happenings to explain where the characters are now. From a dramatic writing point, that just really is ineffective. Too bad, as I like the general tone of Hao Ying Fang's writing, and there were interesting topics in there. It's very interesting, this idea of the info dump. I've heard an awful lot of criticism of the book because of that. And usually I do flag up when a lot of info dumping's been happening, but I remember, I don't think I really talked about the fact that there is lots of info dump going on in the novel. I think if I did a reread, I'd probably be thinking about it loads, but for some reason I didn't, it didn't really bother me that much. Now, Michael Finocchiaro said, quote, this was a good piece of recent Chinese science fiction translated with care by Ken Liu. It is hard not to read it without seeing parallels drawn between the cultural conflicts between Mars and Earth, echoing the cultural gap between China and the US. The Mars of Lu Ying is like a socialist paradise where needs are met but free choice is constrained, whereas the Earth is a purely commercial smorgasbord. Some of the side love stories felt unnecessary, but overall an interesting read really concisely put I agree some of those side love stories as I said in the podcast they happened a bit late and they implied that you'd have a love for these characters where maybe they weren't developed enough to have that love thank you ever so much for those comments Michael Tammy and Dawn thanks very much for listening if you have any questions or comments I'd love to hear them leave a comment below or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. I'd also love suggestions for future books to read together. Maybe there's been one sitting on your shelf for ages, which you haven't got round to reading, and you just need that push to get started. Talking of next books, after I've discussed the second half of Pedro Paramo in two weeks, that's the 27th of January, February's two episodes will be all about one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich which is 143 pages, not too long. So get that one out of the ready if you can. Also, if you enjoyed this, please send me a comment and let me know. And I'd love to hear your thoughts of the first half of Juan Rolfo's Pedro Paramo. Juan, same name as the narrator, a bit like the castle. K, Kafka, possibly. Anyway, I digress. I look forward to discussing the last half of Pedro Paramo in two weeks. That's the 27th of January. See you then.